are the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We worship you this morning. Lord, we thank you that he who was without sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Thank you, Lord, for your sacrifice. Thank you for the gift of faith to accept it. That brings us. We worship you, Lord. Thank you for this time to come together as a community of faith, Lord. We love you. Have a seat. Man, it is good to see everybody this morning. Hope you're having a great uh, day already. What a cool time of worship and celebration together. And uh, we get to continue worshiping together as we hear and study God's Word. And so we love to celebrate God's truth and God's Word. If you're a guest with us today, uh, this may shock you or seem strange or something, but we love to celebrate God's truth by, by applauding and cheering when we open God's Word. And so if you will, turn with me to Colossians chapter 1. And uh, this is one of my favorite parts of the week where we just get to stop together and, uh, and look into God's truth and celebrate uh, what God has done. But today, uh, we are closing up a teaching series. Over the last five weeks, we've been talking about the holiness of God. We've been talking about what it means to know God in His holiness, to understand uh, what He looks like. And we've done that by asking some questions. Uh, the first week, we asked the question, how do we understand a holy God? And that was really just an inter- introduction to the series where we uh, kind of discovered what does it mean for God to be holy, that He is set apart from us, that he is altogether different from us. And so how we understand holiness is that we see God being high and exalted and set apart and different and altogether separate from us. And then we ask the question, how should we encounter a holy God? Uh, And on that Sunday, we looked at the life of Moses and how he came before God at the burning bush. And when he saw this bush that was on fire but not being consumed, uh, he walked up into the presence of God at that bush. And God said, listen, Moses, you've got to take your shoes off because you're getting ready to step onto holy ground. And so Moses removed his shoes. And it shows us that when we come before a holy God, that there has to be a change of posture, that there has to be a change of position. That Moses hid his face from God when he understood where he was and whose presence he was in. The third week we talked about how do we relate to a holy God. And we, uh, we looked at several different people's lives in that story. How do you relate to God when he is holy uh, and we're not necessarily always holy. We don't do things the right way. We're not uh, set apart from sin in this world. So how do we relate to a holy God? And we looked at, at three different people's lives and we said, you know, there were people in Scripture who wrestled with God, who questioned God. Uh, who uh, demanded answers from God. And so in all of those things, whatever it is that you're relating to God and how you talk to Him, He allows us to come before Him in our humanity and to approach Him in His divinity and His holiness. And yet, the end result is always, when we approach God, how does it affect us? It really turns us to a place where we say, it doesn't matter what my questions are, what my fears are, what my concerns are, what questions I have, what you ultimately say is what I will submit my life to. And so the way that we uh, encounter God or relate to God in His holiness is that we will say that we submit to Him. And then last week we asked the question, how does God's holiness affect us? We talked about uh, Isaiah. And we looked at Isaiah coming before God uh, in the temple and he saw God high and exalted seated on His throne and the train of God's robe filled the temple with His glory. 
And so we saw that Isaiah, uh, when he was affected by God, it caused him to re- recognize when he saw the holiness of God, he understood his impurity, his unholiness. And so he had to confess his sin before God. And then the second thing that it does when we're affected by God's holiness is it causes us to want to go on behalf of God. Isaiah, uh, God asked the question, who will I send and who will go for us? And Isaiah said, here am I, send me. Right? And so when we're affected by God's holiness, when we meet Him, get to know Him, are changed by Him, it causes us to want to go out and tell other people about Him. And so today we're going to ask the last question in our series, and that simple question is, how does God's holiness save us? Or how are we saved by God's holiness? And so we're going to look at Colossians chapter 1 in just a minute, but let me ask you a question as we kind of get into this. Uh, has anybody in the room ever been the beneficiary of a bell curve on a grade, a test, a scoring class? Anybody, a few of you, brave enough to raise your hands. The rest of you were the people that we hate because you broke the bell curve, aren't you? And so, uh, but the bell curve, and I've, I've told this story before, so I'm not going to go into all the details here, but uh, I was the beneficiary of a huge, huge bell curve when I was in college Uh, I took a probability and statistics class as part of my major, and I don't like numbers. Numbers don't like me. We don't get along. There are problems that we have. And so um, in this probability and statistics class, um, I ended the class with an average of a 38 on the bell curve, which was good enough for a C. Thank you very much. And so I passed. Thank you. That's right. Um, And so because... Not only was I stupid in that class, apparently everyone else was too. Uh, And so the bell curve can really be a good thing for you. It's designed to make us look better than we actually are when we're against the backdrop of something that's difficult. Now, the problem with the bell curve comes when, and it gets ruined, when what's difficult for everyone else is easy for one or two, right? And so you've always got that person who breaks the curve who when I make a 38, they're making 105. They even got the bonus question that was designed to help me. They didn't need it. I needed it, right? And so in the process of this bell curve, you see that some one individual can ruin a bell curve for everybody else. And so when we apply that to Jesus, uh, we're going to look in just a minute and see that he is the ultimate bell curve breaker. And we're going to apply that by looking at two different groups of people. And before we get into uh, to the passage of Scripture in Colossians, I want us to go back and look at um, two religious groups that were the primary religious leaders of Jesus' day. You've heard of them uh, if you've been around church for very long. And so the first group, by the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, there was a period, a period of about 400 years of silence from God. We have no recorded Scripture, no recorded word from God, no prophecy from God that's given to His people. And during that, what we call the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, two different groups emerged as religious leaders for the, for the Jewish people. Uh, the first group was called the Pharisees. And if you're taking notes this morning, if you'd like to follow along on the YouVersion app, or if you want to look at the backside of your bulletin, you can do that. Um, this group formed a sect who had great zeal for the law of God. They loved God's law. And they wanted to keep it as perfectly as they could. They were striving to do exactly what God said, to the point that they would even design laws to help you not break the law. Like if there was a law that said, you know, like let's think about something simple in our lives. If your milk is outdated on, you know, April 30th, right? 
they would say, well, don't wait till April 30th. The milk is really now outdated on April 15th. Get rid of it by April 15th, right? And so it would be the law so that you didn't break the law. They were so religious, so astute to the law that they wanted to set placards in place that would keep them from ever even bumping up against the actual law. And so these Pharisees uh, took their name. The word Pharisee literally means, and if you're taking notes, write this down. The word Pharisee literally means one who is separated. One who's separated. Now, when you think about God and His holiness, what we learned about God in the very first week of this teaching series was that God is separate. He is set apart. He's set apart from sin. He's set apart from depravity. He's set apart from ugliness because He is so holy. And the Pharisees, their desire was to be separated. They separated themselves from the rest of culture unto holiness. Now listen, we give the Pharisees a hard time. And we do that because Jesus gave the Pharisees a hard time. But initially, this was a really good idea. Like this is one of those things that started out with sincerity and, and, and being something that they wanted to say. If God has a moral law, we want to know it and we want to follow it to the very best of our ability. To the nth degree of the law. They were religious law keepers. But eventually over time what happens is that it stops being about your relationship with God. And it started being about their morality. I want to keep the law better than you keep the law. And I want to impose my religious views and my religious system on you. Not to help you get closer to God. But to keep you set aside from anything else. And so the Pharisees were known uh, to, as ones who were separated. Here's the second group. They were the Sadducees. This was the exalted priestly class of Jesus' day. They took their name from the Old Testament priest Zadok, whose name was taken from the Jewish word for righteous. So the, the Pharisees were set apart to holiness. The Sadducees wanted to be set apart to righteousness. They wanted to be right with God, in right standing with God. That's what they desired. And so you had these two groups of people that had different religious views and political views because their political system fed very much into their religious system. But they would say, we want to be holy and we want to be righteous. And they were in the culture, in front of the Jewish people. They were the ones who everyone put on a pedestal. They got the best seats at the banquet. They got the best of everything. They were the ones to get the invitation to the nicest parties. They were the ones who stood on a street corner and prayed out loud over the people of Israel. They were the priests, they were the rulers of Israel when it came to the things of righteousness and holiness. Now, when Jesus showed up, Jesus comes in and He shows up in true holiness and true righteousness. And all of a sudden, the holiness and the righteousness of the Pharisees and the Sadducees gets exposed. And everything that they thought they were doing that made them right with God, that set them apart from everyone else, when Jesus shows up, He looks at them and says, that's not even close to being good enough. And so when Jesus comes in, He shows true holiness and true righteousness. So the next blank on your outline is this. It's said that nothing dispels a lie faster than the truth. And nothing exposes a counterfeit faster than the genuine, right? No matter how good a counterfeit may be for someone who recognizes the genuine or if you hold the genuine article up beside a counterfeit, you find the flaws in it. You find what's wrong with it. 
And so when Jesus comes onto the scene, the Pharisees and the Sadducees had an appearance of holiness based on the law. But when God showed up, their impurity was exposed. When Jesus, God in flesh, came onto the scene and said, this is what holiness really looks like. This is what righteousness really means. They were exposed. And what was seen and thought to be holy and righteous when it came to Jesus was built on superficial obedience to a set of laws. They had attained holiness by saying, we're keeping God's law. That's what it means for us to be holy. Keep God's law. Do things the right way. Don't mess up. Be really moral. So they're striving for and trying to achieve holiness by keeping a system of law. Jesus comes onto the scene and he just goes, I, I am holy. That's who I am. Your holiness is trying to be achieved by your morality. I'm here to represent holiness to you. And it bothered the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They hated Jesus. And so I want us to look this morning at Colossians chapter 3. And if you'll read this together with me, start in verse 15. Paul writes in Colossians and he says this about Jesus. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for in Him All things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything He might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him, Jesus and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether things on heaven or things in earth, by making peace through His blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in His sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. And so when the Son of Man shows up, when Jesus shows up, the Son of Man is the image of the invisible God. And Scripture tells us that no one can see God. God has never been seen by human eye. But Jesus comes onto the scene and He is the physical representation of God. Everything that God is, Jesus is. So when we say that God is holy, that God is love, that God is just, Jesus is all of these things. He is literally God come in human flesh. So we see Jesus and the Pharisees and the Sadducees wanted everyone to look at them as the representation of God and see their level of holiness and righteousness. But there was a problem. They were counterfeiters. They couldn't live up to the standard that God had set for holiness. They couldn't maintain the standard that God sets for righteousness. How are you right with God? How do you maintain holiness on your own? And that's what they were striving to do. But when Jesus showed up, He exposed them. He was the genuine article of holiness in the presence of these bogus counterfeiters. And the reason that they didn't like Him wasn't that He called them out all the time or said things that were mean about them in public, and He did, and rightly so. The reason they didn't like Him was because He was everything they knew they weren't. He was holy. He was perfect. He was righteous. 
He had a standing with God that they couldn't grasp, that they didn't understand. And so when Jesus comes onto the scene, they weren't pleased because they had been exposed. And we have that same problem that the Pharisees and the Sadducees had. I mean, if you're honest with yourself, we have this same problem. That we want to, on our own, accomplish things. That we have a feeling that we're holy on our own. Outside of a relationship with Jesus, we attempt to please God by being as good as we can. We make faith so many times about morality. That we just want to live as good a life as we can. That we want to be, on our own, considered holy and righteous before God. And when we think about our lives, our holiness is based on this morality that we determine for ourselves and we measure against other people. And we've kind of talked about this through the series, that when it comes to our own morality, that we'll look at other people and we'll go, well, I may not be perfect, but I'm not as bad as her. I'm certainly not as wicked and evil and sinful as that guy. Right? And so we make our lives built around our standards of holiness. And the problem is, is that God never told us to compare ourselves with one another and say, well, I'm not that bad, so I must be on a good path. He said, I want you, when you think about what it means to be holy, to expose yourself to the genuine article, to put yourself beside Jesus and say, do I look like Him? He's the standard. He is the image of the invisible God. And so we need to do that. We need to look at Jesus as the picture, the image of the invisible God, so that He shows us what true holiness looks like. He is our standard bearer. So when we look back at Colossians, we see even more fully who Jesus is. Look back at verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, All things have been created through Jesus and for Jesus. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together, and He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything He might have the supremacy. Now, there's a tricky statement there at the very beginning in verse 15. It says that uh, that He is the firstborn over all creation. And there have been a lot of people that have taken that out of context and misused that and said, see, Jesus is a created being. He's not God he, he, maybe he became God, or God gave him the ability as a man to become God-like, but he's not God. He is the firstborn over all creation. So you see this firstborn nature in Jesus. Well, the problem with that is that that's really not the best translation here. The better word here is that he is the preeminent one. He is the first in line over everything. That he is the exalted first-placed one. Not just firstborn in the sense that I'm firstborn in my family, so I have some different uh, positional things in my family as a firstborn. Jesus is not firstborn in the sense that He came into this world. He has always eternally existed as God. To be the firstborn over all creation means He is preeminent. He is the head of. He is the ruler of everything. And so when Paul writes and says about Jesus that He is the firstborn over all creation, that's what he means. The only problem with Jesus being the firstborn, being preeminent, being the head of the church and holding all things together is that we like to think we're first. We like to think we're in charge. We like to think in our minds that we're holding everything together. We like to think that we're in control of our own destiny and that we're setting the course for where things are going in life. 
And when we look at what Paul says, he's telling us that Jesus is the one who is the ruler, the head over everything, that we are not. And it's the same mistake that the Pharisees and the Sadducees made. That when they looked at Jesus, they didn't like him because he was the one coming in and saying, I'm in charge of all of this. And they were doing their very best to maintain control and be in charge. That's what they wanted more than anything. Their holiness set them apart from everybody else so that no one could measure up to them and they could be in charge because they're better than everybody else. But when genuine holiness showed up, their pseudo-holiness was exposed. And so now they have a real problem with Jesus. That's why from the very first time that Jesus encounters the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they start wanting to get rid of him. They know he's right. And they know because they see in him what is right that they're wrong. That they don't have it all together. And so God is holy. Jesus is holy. And he calls us to holiness. But we can't be holy on our own. We're separated from God by our sin. Only a holy God can save us. So the question of this morning then is this. How are we saved by God's holiness? And for the next few minutes, I just want us to think on this and look at Scripture to see what does it mean to be saved by God's holiness. Here's the next blank on your outline if you're writing some things down. Jesus has reconciled us to God through His blood. The holiness of Jesus given to us made peace with God possible for us. That we've been reconciled to God. Now that's another word, and again, I just told you I don't like numbers, but this is an accounting term. This is something that we talk about. When something is reconciled, it's made right. It's brought from one side of a ledger and changed to the other side of a ledger. It's taken from a, a, a debit to a credit, right? It's moved. It has a different place now. And what we've been in our lives, because of Jesus' holiness, because He came in human flesh and dwelt on this earth to show us God's holiness, through Him and through Him alone can we be reconciled to God. And so when we see Jesus, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority, All things have been created through Him and for Him. Here's the beautiful picture of all of this. That you and I were not only created by God, we were created for God. You were created to have a relationship with God. But sin messes that up. Because of our first parents in the Garden of Eden, who listened to the temptation of Satan, and who chose to rebel against God, we have inherited that same rebellious nature. And because of our sinfulness, we're separated from God. God is altogether holy. He cannot be in the presence of sin. And so we are separated from Him, which is why Jesus came to this earth to be the representation of God. When Jesus showed up, He said, I and the Father am one. People would ask him all the time, hey, his disciples asked him, Jesus, will you show us the Father? And Jesus said, what are you talking about? I and the Father, we're one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We're one and the same. Jesus came and said, I am the image of God. If you want to know what God's like, look at me. If you struggle in your life, knowing how God operates, what he's like, just go back and read the gospel. Look at what Jesus did 
Look at how he spoke. Watch how he lived. See how he interacted with people. And as Jesus lives and does and is, so God lives and does and is. Because when we've seen Jesus, we've seen God. He is the image of the invisible God. And only through him can we be saved. Look at verses 19 and 20. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on heaven or things in earth, by making peace through his blood that was shed on the cross. So this is what Jesus is telling us, or what Paul is telling us about Jesus and about God's plan for reconciliation. That it's only possible to be reconciled with God, to have your sinful nature changed from one side of the ledger where you're in opposition to God and away from God to the other side of the ledger where you're now at peace with God and in relationship with Him. And the only way to make that transaction work and to move from one side to the other is to be reconciled through Jesus. That He's the only way. That only through Him can you be made right with God. How are we saved by God's holiness? We're saved through Jesus' holiness. That because He came and He took our place, we can stop doing all the other things that we strive to do to make ourselves right with God. Like if you thought church attendance makes you right with God, you can stop. If you thought going to Bible studies makes you right with God, you can stop. If you thought that high standards of morality is what makes you right with God, you can forget that. Because there's only one thing that makes us right with God. It's being reconciled through Christ. We were created for Him And we were made by Him. So only through Him can we have a relationship with God the Father. And so the next thing that I want us to see and look at is that we need to understand that all of this is a gift that's from God. Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 says this, It is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. In other words, when we think about this, when we see what's unfolding in Scripture, he says, listen, there are people who are striving and trying so hard to work themselves into salvation. But the grace of God given to us is that only by God's grace and through faith can we be saved. And so anything else you're trying to do, anything else that you think is leading you to salvation, you're missing the point. God's saying, this is a gift. It's something I want to hold out to you so that you accept. And it's by my grace that I'm doing this. Not because you've been good enough, not because you've earned it, not because you deserve it, but simply because I'm good. And because of my grace, I want to offer this to you. Now, how do you accept it? By faith. By faith, God, I believe Jesus is who you say. I believe He is the exact representation of God the Father. I believe that Jesus did come to this earth, live a perfect life, sinless. In faith, I trust that He died on the cross to take my place so that I can have my sins forgiven. And by faith, I accept your gift. That's what it takes. How are we saved by God's holiness? We're saved by being reconciled to God through Jesus. It's by His grace and through faith that we take that gift. 
And here's the beauty of what we gain in our relationship being restored to God. Look at the end, verses 21 through 23. It says, Once you were alienated from God and you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in His sight without blemish and free from accusation if you continue in your faith established and firm and do not move from the hope that, you, that was held out to you in the gospel. See, here's the problem. Because of our sin, we were alienated from God. And we, we know this. Because of sin, we have no relationship with God. We are born in opposition to God, set apart from Him. And so we're alienated because of sin. But I love what he says, because you were once alienated from God, you were enemies, but now He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death. How are we saved by God's holiness? Through Jesus' act of dying on the cross. Through taking the wrath of God that we deserved, we're saved by His grace through faith. And he says because of that, when we are reconciled to God, we're now no longer alienated from Him, but when we're reconciled to God, we're alienated from the world. That God tells us, when you come into faith, when you come into a relationship with me, the part of the transaction that takes place when you're moved from one side of the ledger to the other is no longer are you alienated from me, now you're alienated from the world. See, we've started trying to figure out how we can accept Jesus and have His salvation, but still live any way we want to. And still follow a pattern of this world that everybody else is following. Still do everything that the world says is okay, the world system says is okay, that God calls sin, and we want to stay there. I want to go to heaven when I die. I want the, the relationship with God, but I don't want to live in obedience to Him. And there's no way that you can do that. To be reconciled to God, made right with God, means that you will no longer be alienated from Him, but that you will become alienated from the world. That God's holiness is given to you and given to me. And then we now look at sin and we say, I don't want any part of that. Look at the, the next part of the verse. He says, He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body, verse 22, through death to present you holy in His sight, without blemish and free from accusation. This is so powerful. When we're saved, the holiness we could not achieve on our own by obeying the law, by being good enough, by going to church enough times, by reading our Bible enough, the holiness that we could not attain in our own and on our own. Jesus says, when I give you life, when you're reconciled to me, you become holy. The holiness of Jesus is given to us. It's laid on us. And he says these two words that are beautiful. You're holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. And so when God looks at us, when we're transferred from one side of the ledger to the other, when we're reconciled to God, made right with Him, given the holiness of Jesus for ourselves, He says, when I see you, you're free from blemish. There's no blemish on you. I don't see your past sins. I don't see your current struggles. I don't see all the mess that your life has made. When I look at you, there's no blemish on you. There's no mark on you. There's no problem with you. Because when Jesus looks at us now, or when God the Father looks at us now, on this side of the ledger, reconciled to God, He sees His beautiful, perfect, spotless 
Son in our place. God the Father looks at you in relationship with Him through Jesus. And because of Jesus' perfection and holiness, when God looks through Him and at us, He sees the holiness of Jesus. That's good news. Because only through that can you be saved. The second side of that is He says, I see you as being uh, free from blemish, but He also says free from accusation. Who's going to accuse you? When God the Father looks at you through His Son, who's going to accuse you? Because to accuse you is to accuse Jesus. And God can't hear those accusations because He will never deny Himself. And when He sees Jesus in us, He sees Himself. No one accuses you. This is the beauty of the Gospel. That on the day that you die, Satan will not stand before the throne of God with you standing there beside him and go, you should get rid of this one. He lived a terrible life. He was awful in his life. Satan can no longer accuse you because when God the Father sees you, he sees his Son on you. And the holiness of Jesus is imputed to us, given to us, so that we're made right with God in a way that no one can attack. So we're changed forever. Because of our sin, we're alienated from God. When we're reconciled, we're alienated from the world. God made us holy in His sight. That means we're set apart from the world to act according to God's ways. I want to give you four things really quickly. They're not on your outline. I added these late last night. But I was reading through John Eldridge's book, The Utter Relief of Holiness. And he had four things that I think kind of pull this all together very easily. And then we're going to start to wrap this up. Number one is this. Four things that happens when we trust Jesus to be our Savior. So when you come into a faith relationship with Jesus, what are the four things that you can bank on happening? And I may even add a fifth in just a minute. Number one is this, that through the sacrifice of Jesus upon the cross, your sins have been completely forgiven, past, present, and future. Sin no longer dominates your life. When you come into faith in Jesus, you are completely forgiven. That's good. That's so powerful. Here's the second thing. Through the sacrifice of Jesus, you've been reconciled to God. That's what we've been talking about all morning. That you're moved from one account to another, from apart from God to in the family of God. You're in His kingdom. You're reconciled to God. Here's number three. Through the sacrifice of Jesus, you have been delivered from the tyranny of that part of you in bondage to sin. So here's the problem that we all face, is that we're still going to be sinful people. We're still sinners even when we come into relationship with God. And yet the great plan of salvation for God that God has for us is that God, through Jesus, can release us from the bondage that we're held in. You're no longer held under that bondage that you now have someone who can break those chains, who's fighting on your behalf. And some people, I've heard stories over and over of some people who have crazy, difficult vices in their life, sins and struggles. And when they walk into a relationship with Jesus, there are some people who He immediately just sets them free from that. Pornography addictions removed completely. Never another struggle with looking at pornography again. Drug and alcohol addictions completely removed. Never have a desire for anything like that again. There are other people who will continue to struggle 
who will continue to have those draws to sinful problems, to sinful addictions, to sinful patterns of life. And yet, we have a God on our behalf who teaches us through His Word that when we struggle in sin, and that when we're tempted by sin, that through Him, He gives us the power and the ability to say no. We just have to learn how. And we have to trust Him through that. And so one of the things that we see is that we are delivered from the the tyranny of the part of life that's bondage to sin. And then here's the, the fourth one. Through the resurrection of Jesus and the coming of the Holy Spirit of God, you now have the life of Jesus Christ within you. That He literally comes and lives in you. That He takes up residence in your life. And He says the, the Christian life is not about you reading the Bible and trying to emulate something and be something that you learn, like that you're trying to do on your own. He says the Christian life is letting me come and live inside of you and then me live through you. That every single day is us saying to God, what do you want to do through me today? I'll put myself on the altar to die to myself so that I can live for you. You guide my life. You push me. You direct me. I'm under your control. And then here's the last one that I would add. That through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, we have hope for the future. And we have unimaginable hope for the future. This morning before I was getting ready to to speak, I was on Facebook just looking through, scrolling through a few things, and I saw two people that I love very dearly, families that I know and care about, and both of them lost someone dear to them this week. Just today, in fact. Both of them posted this morning that there had been a death in their family. And yet both of them celebrated the fact that while their hearts were broken, they knew, they knew because of their faith in Jesus that there will be a future reunion with those people that they love in heaven with God. Because of Jesus, there's hope for your life. Because of Jesus, you have hope for your future. But only, only, if you know Him. Only if you've been reconciled to Him. And so when Jesus, the Holy One from God, reconciles us to the Heavenly Father, there's no more condemnation for us. I love what Romans chapter 8 says. Uh, Romans 8, 1 through 4, I think it's going to be on the screen for us this morning, but it says this, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, not by us, in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So Jesus tells us, God shows us, when we come into faith in Him, there's no more condemnation. There's no one who accuses you. There's no one who stands against you. You have a hope for your future that can't be erased. This is the relationship you need more than anything else in your life. More than food or air or shelter. You need a relationship with Jesus. And we know how valuable those things are. More than air? Yeah, if you stopped breathing right now outside of a relationship with Jesus, you have a bigger problem than no longer breathing. You have an eternal destiny set apart from God waiting for you. 
This is bigger than your need even to breathe. You need a relationship with Jesus. And so this morning, here's how I want us to close. And just for a minute, I want to talk to anyone in the room who may not have a personal relationship with God through Jesus. In our Christian faith, we call this being saved. And some people are like, saved from what? I, what is that? I hear people all the time talk about, have you been saved? You, you need to get saved. And it's like, what in the world does being saved mean? Here's what being saved means. When we talk about being saved, it means that you have been saved from your sins. That God has removed the punishment from your life, taking you from one side of the ledger and reconciled you to himself through Jesus so that you will no longer pay the penalty for sin. You've been saved from that. He has saved you from paying death's penalty and sin's penalty to give you everlasting life. And so this morning, there may be those of you in the room who had look at your life and you know that if something happened to you today, that you don't have a relationship with Jesus. And according to what the Bible teaches and what we believe in faith, if you died today, without a relationship with Jesus, that you would spend an eternity separated from Him in a very real place that the Bible calls hell. And the invitation this morning, in the middle of all this, how are we saved by God's holiness? We're saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ to be transferred from out of a kingdom of darkness and death and sin and into the kingdom of light and life and joy and hope. And this morning, if you don't know that hope, if you don't have that relationship with Jesus, today is the day you need to make that right. Today is the day that you need to look at your life and ask serious questions about whether or not, if you died, you would spend eternity with God forever or separated from God. Where would you be what we're missing in life is being reconnected to the God who created us and loves us. And if today you would look at your life and say, I don't have that connection to God. I don't know Him. Here's what I want to tell you. You don't have to know everything about Christianity to come to a place where you invite Christ into your life. God doesn't ask you to figure it all out and then come into relationship with Him. He simply says, you come. After you come, I'll work on changing you. I'll put my spirit in you to start sanctifying you, changing you to be like me. The first step is just come. The first step is ask Jesus to save you. And so this morning, we're going to do something that we don't do very often here. In fact, I'm going to ask the band to go ahead and come back up. Phil, you guys come back up here. But we don't do a lot of times around here a person, you know, public invitation but today we're going to. Because I feel like this is a moment that there are people who need to respond to the truth that's been presented here today. That God loves you so much that He sent His one and only Son to this earth to give His life for you so you can be reconciled to God. You don't have to be good enough. You don't have to know enough. You don't have to, to strive any further than just to say, I know this is a gift offered to me by God. And you can accept the gift today. God's grace. You just take a step of faith. 
where you step forward and say, I'll accept that. I want it to change my life. And it will not only change your life, it will change your eternal destiny. That's the beautiful picture of God's grace. It changes everything. And that from this moment forward, there's no more guilt. There's no more shame. There's no more condemnation. Romans 8, 1, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because the law of the life and Spirit of God has set us free from the law of sin and death. You're set free. Chains broken, bondage taken off, shackles removed. Freedom. Freedom that you've never experienced before. It's available to you today. So here's what I'm going to ask. I'm going to ask if you will, just everyone in the room right now, just close your eyes and pray with me. And I'm going to ask to do it two ways. Christians in the room, I want you to be praying for people here this morning that don't know Jesus right now, but they need to. So Christians, will you just start praying that God will do what we can't. Only the Spirit of God can change somebody's heart. I can't say enough things. I could stop talking right now. Some of you might like me to. I could stop talking right now, and God's Spirit will continue and can continue to work to change hearts in ways we can. So Christians, would you just pray that in this moment the Spirit of God will convict people who don't have a relationship with the Father through Jesus, that today needs to be their day for salvation. Now here's the second part. If you know this is you today, you don't have a relationship with Jesus, but you want one today. Would you just very simply raise your hand and say, today's my day. I want Jesus in my life. I want to invite Jesus into my heart and into my life. If that's you today, would you just raise your hand? Nobody's looking around. Even if they were, we're all for you. We want to see your hands up. This is the greatest decision that you would ever make. So if this is you today, would you just raise your hand and say, I want a relationship with you. pray this prayer something like it there's nothing magical about this it's not a magic potion it's nothing but would you just say something like this it's our way to communicate that desire to God I want a relationship with you so would you just say something like this God I know that you are holy and I'm not and I know that my sin separates me from you and outside of a relationship with you I'm doomed for all eternity Today, I want to confess my sin. And Jesus, I accept your forgiveness. Because of what you did on the cross, I can have a relationship with God. Would you forgive me of my sin and welcome me into your family? Thank you for saving me. Set me on a path now from lifetime obedience to you. that prayer this morning or if you have a desire to know more about what it means to have a faith relationship with Jesus would you just tell me after the service will you come find me we're going to be around just let me know hey I, I, I asked Jesus to be my savior today 
and I want a relationship with Him. I need somebody to help me know what that looks like. Or maybe you would even say, I'm, I'm not quite there yet, but I want to know more. We'd love to tell you more. All right? Let's just stand and let's worship together.